tonight and try to do a little bit of theology, if you will, about what it means to be created in God's image. Um, when you open up Genesis, there has been some confusion in the past because you really have day one uh, through six given there in chapter one. Now, I will say, and I can bring this up again, and, and let me remind you, we will, and I think Jeremy said this, we will not be meeting next Wednesday night. Um, it's spring break with everything else, and it's a good time to give all of our volunteers downstairs and everywhere else a, a little break. Um, so we will not be meeting next Wednesday night here on campus. We will be back in two weeks. And so uh, if, you, if you look at Genesis 1 and how this lays out, you have the first six days in the first chapter. And then you have day seven at the beginning of the second chapter. Now, I'm not really sure why that is. I want to remind you guys that the chapters and verses are not inspired by God. Um, when Moses wrote this, he did not use chapter and verses. So these were added later for reference and other reasons. And I have no idea what they were thinking when they put day seven in chapter two. I just really don't understand it. We'll honor it because that's the way our, our Bibles have been laid out forever. I'm not going to make y'all change it in your Bible right now. And that may, be feel, that may feel weird to some of you. Um, but I do want you to notice that. So what you'll see is verse 6, uh, excuse me, not verse 6. Day 6 is there in chapter 1. Chapter 1 serves as an overview. And what's caused some confusion, I think, for some people throughout the years is the fact that chapter 2 kind of goes back and expands on day six. Now, are y'all, you may be familiar with this old thing we used to call atlases. Y'all ever heard of an atlas? Okay, and so, so some of y'all, if you still have an atlas in your car, you probably need to trade that car in for a new one. Um, but it's that paper map, you know, and then when you had a city or someplace that was high density roads and other things, it would have this little pull it out and you'd have this little a uh, little uh, side deal here. I forget what they call it. Something fancy. Inset or something. That's good. So you'd have that inset of the city so you could see more detail closely, if you will. You should consider Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 just like that. Genesis 1 is this overall map of how God created in these six literal days. And then he rested on the seventh one. And then Genesis 2 is kind of this inset that pulls out day 6 and gives us greater detail about how he created man and how he created woman. Does that make sense to everybody? So it kind of gives us this greater detail of what's happening. The reason why I say some have been confused by this is because many people have believed there was two different creations of humanity here, or two different things going on, and that's, that's really not what's happening. What's happening is chapter 1 is an overview, which gives us this overview understanding of creation. Chapter 2 is going to pull out day 6 and give us greater detail. Chapter 1, he simply says, let's make man in our own image. So he does. In chapter 2, he says, here's how we did that. We created man by taking the dust of the earth and forming it and breathing our own breath into it. And then we created woman by causing him to go into a deep... You understand what I'm saying. It's pulling it out and giving us greater detail. So tonight, I want us to look there in chapter 1 of Genesis at verses 26 through 27, mostly. We may look down a little bit uh, um, farther if we... If we can, but I want us to look there and consider this passage 
about day six, when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, him. Male and female, he created them. And so I want us to consider this tonight. What does it mean for us to be created in God's image? What does it mean for us to be created in God's image? First of all, you probably have heard this Latin phrase, imago Dei, God's image. That's exactly what it means. What is the imago Dei? It's the fact that we've been created in God's image. And so the idea of imago Dei is used sometimes, you'll see that used. So that's what it means. It's the image of God. That's how man has been created. What that means is that man is like God. You see the differences. If you go back, you can look up there in the verses just before this when he starts talking about day six. Because in day six, uh, at the end of verse 23, he ends day five. Now day six begins, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, and beasts earth according to their kinds and it was so and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. He has all of these different things in their kind, in their group. And then God turns around and said, now let us make man in whose kind? My kind, our kind, if you will. So let us make man in our image. And so God now is creating man in his likeness. So what it means to be the, in the Imago Dei, uh, the image of God in man, is that man is like God and represents God. So immediately he says, let's make man in our image, and our likeness, and let them have dominion. And so in other words, he is like God and he represents God. That's what it means to be created in God's image. We are created like God and then we represent God in creation. Now, when you have Genesis 1, you begin to see how it's laid out. Uh, as one theologian says, uh, that man appears in Scripture and in history and all of time in a fourfold state. First is they're created in God's image. They're created in God's image. But then after the fall... After the fall, God's image is distorted. God's image is fractured, if you will, but it's not lost. So because of sin, the image of God is going to be distorted and fractured. So in Genesis 1 and 2, they're created in God's image, exactly in God's image. After Genesis 3, and they sin, that image is distorted and fractured and, and broken, if you will, but it's not completely lost. That's in our sinfulness. And then whenever someone gets saved and redeemed, they are progressively restoring or recovering the image of God. That's what sanctification is. So you have in Genesis 1 and 2, made in God's image, exactly in his likeness. That's lost when sin enters in. Although it's, it's distorted, although it's not completely gone, we're still in God's image, but it's distorted, it's broken. And then when we get saved or redeemed by Christ, it starts to be rebuilt. This is exactly what Paul says when he says that God is conforming us into the image of his son. He's shaping us again back into that image. 
which won't be complete until that fourth time when our complete restoration of God's image takes place, when Christ returns for us and we're with him in glory. So there's four different uh, states that man falls in in Scripture. In God's image in, image in chapter 1 and 2, in the distorted fallen image of God that is distorted but not completely lost, in the progressively redeeming or recovering image of God through redemption in Christ, and then finally in glory when we are completely restored back to the image of God again. What we're dealing with here in Genesis 1 is that first one. What does it mean to be in the image of God for us? What does it mean to be in the image of God? So when I say he's like God and represents God, let's consider this idea of being like God first. If we're going to be in the image of God, similar to him, if you will, that means we have attributes of God's personality, of his personality. That means we have a personality. We, we talk like this too. We speak about people's personalities. So what does it mean to have a personality? Personality means that you have knowledge. You know things. You're able to know things. God knows things, right? He's, he's all-knowing. And so we as people are not all-knowing, but we're similar to God. We can know things. We learn things. We grow in our knowledge. Some of us stop growing earlier than others. I'm not going to point anybody out. But we grow in our knowledge, and not only can we grow in it, we apply it. We're able to take our knowledge and use it. You use knowledge every single day. Every, everything you're doing, you're applying the knowledge that you have of where. When you drove to this church, you had knowledge about where this church was. Now, some of you had to pull out the atlas, I'm sure. But you have knowledge about where it was, so you applied that knowledge to get you here. You're storing that knowledge up. That goes into what it means to be a person, what it means to be in the image of God, to have knowledge and be able to use that knowledge and apply that knowledge. We also recognize that in this, you also have feelings. You have feelings. You have knowledge and you have feelings. You have head and you have heart, if you will. God has feelings. We see it in Scripture. He has love. He has care. He has all of these things. We have feelings just as he does. We have feelings, including religious feelings, including thoughts towards God's and toward God and, and warmth and other things that we have toward him. We have knowledge and we have feelings. We also have a will. Which means, I'm not talking about something you have when you die. It means that you have um, the ability to reason things out and do according to your reasoning. Not just apply knowledge, but use wisdom, if you will, and, and, and push it towards something. So first and foremost, this personality, when we talk about they've got a cute personality, it's how they, they have their feelings, their knowledge, their will, all working together to come out to form that person. And all of us are unique and different in that personality. But this is just as similar to God. It's different from other things. Now, please do not start with me about how your dog has a great personality, okay? We get into this, and I know some of you are dog people. If you're cat people, really, I don't even want to hear from you. But if you are dog people, don't even... So it's, it, it only proves the case. Like, like when we have a dog, I had a dog one time, and we used to think that dog's the smartest dog I've ever seen in my life because that dog could walk up to any door and reach up with his mouth and his paw, open the doorknob, and walk through. And we're like, this dog's a genius, right? This dog can open the door. Watch how smart my dog is. 
He can open the door with the doorknob. Well, my two-year-old can do that. Do you understand what I'm saying? It proves the point that these things are not the same. This is different than, than others. That when we think they are brilliant and genius, they're doing something that a two-year-old human being can do and learn and approach. We're talking about a whole different category than pets. I know that hurts some of your feelings. But we're moving beyond that and saying we're creating God's image. Therefore, we have knowledge that we're able to learn, grow, and apply. Feelings that we can express and demonstrate and show in a will where we can take all of this and reason on how to live life and work. We say, uh, again, we, we, we talk about other animals or other creatures. And, and some other animals do show some of these features, but not on the level that we as humans have at all. They do not reason, they react. We do not have to react, we have reason. They do not create, they conform. We can take things and create them and make them like God has done. Really, they do not love, they only reproduce. I said that about dogs. I, I, I mentioned this one time and somebody came up to me and when I said that animals do not love, oh gosh, that was trouble. They, this lady said to me, have you ever considered the penguin? And I responded, I, actually, I haven't, you know, not, not at all. I, the penguins mate for life, and they have love. And I said, do you want your relationship with your husband to mirror a relationship with a penguin? Is that what you want? Is that what you look for? Obviously, there are animals in life that have some appeal of this or thought of this. Like geese, they always fly in pairs. They mate for life. Sure, great. That has nothing to do with being created in the image of God and how we love one another. And our love ties to our emotions, our hearts, our feelings, our knowledge, everything. So if you want to create and just say that somebody like a lobster, you know, lobsters mate for life. So if you want to say that that person's my lobster or something like that, then that's, 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 that's fine. But you need to know it's not the same. It's not the same. For we as humans are created in God's image and we have the personality and a personhood that reflects his that no other creature has. No other creature has. But not only that, we also, to be created in God's image, not only personality, but we, have, uh, we demonstrate it with our morality. With our morality. We see right and wrong. And from birth, we recognize right and wrong. It's placed in us, right? We, we see it and we know it. And in our life, therefore, we exercise two things. We exercise freedom and responsibility. Freedom and responsibility that no other creature does. Now, let's talk about freedom for a second, because I think this is important. As human beings, created in the image of God, our freedom is not absolute. It's never straight autonomous. We never have just absolute freedom that we can do powers uh, of our contrary choice or anything else. We don't ultimately have that. What it means when he says that we have freedom is we have the freedom to do what we want to do. Does that make sense to everybody? You have the freedom to do what you want to do. And that's not an absolute freedom. You cannot do opposite of your very nature. You are going to want to do according to the nature that you have. And so you have the freedom to do whatever you want to do, which will never or possibly be contrary to the very nature that you have. So when we talk about free will, we don't mean that you have the power of contrary choice. Nobody in Scripture believes that. 
we need to recognize that definition. When we're talking about free will, it means we have the power to do what we want to do. To give you another Latin term to sum this up, because many people you know, get confused sometimes about Adam and Eve and the garden and, and how they sinned, did they, did they have freedom. The Latin term that has been used to this, and you don't have to write this down because you'll probably never need it in your life before the fall, but it was this, passe non pecare. In other words, Adam and Eve in the garden were able not to sin. Passe non pecare just simply means able not to sin. They were able not to sin. Their nature gave them the ability to not sin. So they could come up and they could make choices that wouldn't be sinful. Hence, when the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is placed, they had the ability, passe non pecare, to not choose that tree and choose what is good every time. They had that ability. Now, when they sinned, when they did sin, and their freedom was restricted even far further, it went from passe non pecare to non passe non pecare. Once we sin, we are not able not to sin. The nature changed. And that's according to God's word. Now, you, they had the ability to not sin, but then once sin entered in, because of their choice, their ability to not sin was gone, and their nature became very sinful in and of itself. And so the scripture teaches us that we, apart from Christ, have ultimately a sinful nature, right? And so our sinful nature is there, and so we are bound by our nature. You have freedom, but your freedom is restricted by your very nature. You can't do opposite of what you uh, are what is natural to you. Just take it for James uses languages, right? So he says when he talks about don't um, you, you know your tongue is a blazing fire. He says can salt water come from a freshwater spigot? Y'all know what a spigot is? Okay. Can salt water come from a freshwater spigot? No. Can a leopard change its spots? No. You see what I'm saying? This is their very nature. They're going, you're going to do what is natural to you. And so once Adam and Eve sinned, they lost their passe non pecari, their ability to not sin, and now they are bound by sin. And someone has to come to release them from the bondage of sin because they're slaves to it. They're slaves to it. And so ultimately, that, that is law. So this attribute of morality gives them a freedom. You have a freedom. And when Christ comes in and the Spirit lives inside of you, what happens to us? Now we again, through the power of the Spirit, have passe non pecare. God says, do not sin, right? Now, because of the Spirit working, starting to remold us into the image of Christ, shape us again, now, when Christ saves us and redeems us and the Spirit lives within us through the power of the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the flesh. Passe non pecare. Now we have the ability to not sin and do what is right. That doesn't mean we choose it every time. But at least we have that ability. So in Adam and Eve, we see that they had that freedom. Wasn't absolute. It was restricted by God, but it was given to them. This, by the way, I'm explaining all this because, one, it's important to understand who we are. We have to. Important to understand who God is. We have to. But also, explain all this because we're the only ones in all of creation like this. 
We're the only ones that have a moral responsibility within us because we not only have freedom, but we have responsibility. And that means because we are created in the image of God, we have a moral responsibility now before God to honor him. And so when we do sin and dishonor him, it brings judgment. It brings judgment. And so because we're creating the image of God, we not only have freedom, but we have responsibility. And that responsibility, just like all of our responsibilities, will come with some sort of, uh, not necessarily punishment, but some sort of, um, of effect, if you will, if you don't keep it. Something will happen. And that's why we see this. The will that we have been given that has morality at its very heart, creating God's image, allows us to have freedom, but it also causes us to have responsibility. Unlike any other creature, we have that responsibility before God. Third, then, um, it gives us this element of spirituality. So we have personality, we have morality, and we have spirituality. Man is made for communion with God. When you read scripture, I believe that we are body and soul. I think in the scripture, and, and like most people throughout church history have agreed, that there's two parts to us, body and soul. Soul and spirit in scripture is really used interchangeably. Okay, um, and, and anytime people say you have a body, soul, and spirit, usually when they say you have three, they're, they're using some Greek philosophy to try to understand how those works, and it's not really healthy. In scripture, spirit and soul are interchangeable. So you have the body and you have the spirit or the soul. And that spirit there is made for us to communicate with God. We commune with him. We are made as spiritual creatures. Remember, God the Father is spirit. He does not have a body like men. This is what he, Jesus says in John chapter 4. We recognize in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the things of God are spiritually discerned. So you have to know them. You only can know him through that spirit now. And so that's how we know it. And this spirit soul is created by God to be eternal in Scripture. To be eternal. That's why hell is eternal and heaven is eternal. Because we're created and we're made as eternal souls, eternal spirits that will live eternally, either in heaven or in hell. Either in heaven or in hell. So when we think of it this way, we're created to have a relationship with God. God created us to have a relationship with him, and that's what it means to be created in his image spiritually, to create to have a relationship with him. We're aware, we're aware of God, and we seek to commune with him. Now, here's what's happened in human history. Once you had Adam and Eve, and then they fell into sin, and they were punished, they were separated from God, right? And God says that the wages of this sin is death, and spiritually we died, you know, we were separated from God. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and so you're dead in that. And so what happens is we're trying throughout history, it is marked with people trying to find God on their own, right? I mean, that's what, you, that's what every other religion is. 
They're looking for something because we're created with this desire to commune with God, but yet we can't find him in our own strength and our power because our spirit is dead in community with him until it will be made alive again. And so what's happened in human history is we're trying to replace that desire for God with anything and everything else. So we worship stars. We worship the moon. We worship the mountains. And then we get even crazier and we start forming things into carved images and bowing down to them. Idolatry comes because we were created with a spiritual, spiritual understanding and they're looking for communion with something. But what happens is Romans 1 tells us is that instead of looking to the creator God, they trade the truth for a lie. They suppress righteousness for unrighteousness and they begin to look everywhere else. And so they try to fill what only God can fill with these carved images and idols and other things that are trying to fill this void because we're creating God's image. And only God, that community with God is what we're longing for. So we try to fill it with everything else we could possibly find. We try to fill it with anything else. But there's, there's certain things that are so interesting when you look through history, especially intellectual history. We recognize that everybody worships something, right? Everybody worships something. There's no way you can possibly say you're done. You're, you're bowing down to something. Either it could be just man's reason and, and your thought processes, but you're worshiping something. You're bowing down to something. You're letting something guide your life somewhere, whatever it may be. It may be some modern philosophy. It may be anything else, but something is guiding you. Everybody's worshiping because we're created spiritually and we're looking to fill that. But most of the world, don't, don't hear me when you say that they're looking to fill it and they're just hoping God does it. That's not what Romans 1 says. Romans 1 says God has been evident and they're choosing not to fill it with God. They're choosing to fill it with other things. And so everybody tries to explain how does this work? How do you know things? How do we understand these things? How, do you, how does this even happen? How do we, even in our minds, have any knowledge of anything? And, and the history of philosophy is just kind of filled with this. And so it would come down and people would try to explain how we have knowledge. And, and there was a guy just a couple hundred years ago named John Locke. John Locke, by the way, wrote the principles for the founding of South Carolina. He was, a, he was a philosopher as well that came up with this thing called the tabula rasa. So another, I've used several Latin words tonight, so this should give me a lot of credit for whoever's grading me. Um, so John Locke, this thing called the tabula rasa, which would say that we as people are just blank slates. Tabula, white tablets, basically, blank slates. And so we fill those slates up, right, in different ways. And he said we fill them up through what he called empiricism or existentialism, the, which is the idea that we learn from our senses. So we only learn from our five senses. And so we're, we're filling up our knowledge and learning from our five senses. And so when people started to address this and go, wait a minute, that doesn't work. There was this guy named Immanuel Kant who came along and Immanuel Kant says, wait a minute, if you say we only learn from our senses, then, then how do we know what, for example, when America was founded, how do you know what a right is? Anybody, we claim our rights all the time, right? Can you smell a right? Can you, some of y'all say, oh, I can smell one. <laughs> can, you, can you touch it? You know, can you eat it? Well, how do you know what it is? Can you hear a right? How do you know that you have rights that are given to you and bestowed upon you? 
You can't know this. So Kant called it his wall, Kant's wall. How, you, you get to this place where I can't figure out how everybody knows what's coming next and how people know there, how if that's the case that you learn everything through your senses, then how do you even know there's a God exists, that a God exists? I mean, where, where do you find it? Where do you know from it? How do you, how do you smell it, touch it, taste it? How do you even know this? There was another guy that tried to correct it named Hume. Hume called it his, Hume's gap. So Kant had his wall, Hume had his gap. Why is this? Because they could not figure out how to get across this, this divide here to say, we can see these things in life that we know and we can understand but then there's this stuff over here that people know about God. Every little place you go, uh, uh, whatever tribe in whatever country in their most remote place has some sense that there is a God out there. They have some sense of right and wrong. They have some sense of these things. And while it's distorted, every one of them has it. How do they know that? And they called it one was his gap. The other was his wall. How do you get to it? And the answer for us is the Imago Dei that we are all created in God's image. And therefore, within all of us, within all of us is this longing. We already have this knowledge and know that we're not the most significant one, right? We know there's one out there greater than us. We know that our dignity is not found in this ultimate world alone. Our dignity is found in the creator who made us and how great and glorious he is. We know these things to be true, and yet we try to suppress them or press them aside. But the way we know all of these things to be true is because God created us to know him. He created us to know him. And instead of wanting to know him, we've tried to fill that void with anything and everything else. And that's what it means ultimately. Not only that we have a personality, so we have knowledge, we apply it, feelings, emotions, and a will that we use. Not only that we have... Um, not only do we have a morality where we have freedom and we have responsibility, but we also have this spirituality where we know that there's one out there. We've created, been created to know him, and when we don't know him, we try to fill it with everything we can. Because the image of God has taught us, and we know that there's a God out there. We know it is. And so ultimately, that's what I think, those three things, if you will, um, many people talk about the image of God also has to do, these are all spirituality, it also has to do with the body, of course it does. You know, God's image, scripture tells us that, that Jesus is not only going to redeem the soul and spirit, but he's going to redeem the body, right? And uh, after Easter, we'll preach on doubting Thomas, what did Jesus do after resurrection? We'll say, touch me. You know, so Jesus redeemed the physical body as well. We all know, I, it's hard for us to tell sometimes, but but our bodies are breaking down and we're getting older and older. I know some of y'all haven't even noticed. Those are the effects of that fall of sin that has creeped in upon us. Those are the effects. Now, don't hear me when I say this, just like what we think. Um, the image of God is not determined by the fact that I have two arms and two legs. Does that make sense to everybody? I, I could lose these arms in some sort of amputation and that does not diminish the image of God in me. That's not exactly what we mean when we say body. What we mean when we say body is that God has created us both body and soul in his image. Made us in his image and he will redeem both of those. In the fall, both body and soul were distorted. The image of God in both were distorted. 
and sin creeped in and the effects of it began. Jesus has come to reverse that. He's come to save and redeem that and bring it back. So when we understand these things, here in this lies our true worth. What Jesus is, is teaching us through Genesis here, what God is showing us here, is that our true worth is found in the fact that we as human beings created in God's image are the crowning jewel of all of his creation. We're the top. We're the peak. No other part of his creation was made in his image. They were all made according to their likeness, according to their likeness, according to their kind. But we were made according to God's kind. We are the crowning jewel. And I don't say that with any hesitation or reservation. Trees are not as important as people, right? We know this. In fact, all of creation, it seems in this passage, all of creation was created for the purpose of serving who? Us. It was created to serve us. The stars in the sky help us mark the days and the nights, right? The light serves us all throughout. God created his, his creation and he made it perfect and then he placed us in it and said, this is yours. And our dignity comes from the fact that we're created in God's image. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. That's something the Big Bang can't give you, right? When you think that there's just a glob of matter somewhere that got out there somehow and lightning struck it in some way, and there was a major explosion, and this little piece over here, I'm just making stuff up now because so do they. <laughs> um, this little piece over here became this, this little rock, and this little piece over here became some sort of tree, and this little piece over What in the world? Our dignity can't be found in that because that's nothing but happenstance and chance. And dignity is not found in happen chance, happenstance and chance or happen chance. Dignity is found in purpose. Dignity is found in a purpose. And purpose is found in the creator that made us and shaped us. And so the reason we have dignity as human beings, the reason we are the crowning jewels, because God has made us in his image. And all of creation is seeking to serve us. Is seeking to serve us. Now, don't hear that, and I, I'll say this, in some imperialistic way that I can go out and do whatever I want to in creation, that would be foolishness. We're to care for creation just as God cares for creation, just as he cares for it. We're to watch over it. But dignity is found in the fact that we are made in God's image. Our worth is found in the fact that we are made in God's image, and therefore we are valuable. Every single one of us are valuable to God and to others. We're valuable to God and to others. It's the reason why we fight for life, right? Because every life is valuable to God and to others. God loves, and listen to what he says. He says, let's make man our own image. God loves man and men and women. Man there is humankind or humanity, if you will, in our own image. 27 gives us even more detail when he says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here he's saying when God creates man, he creates man, male and female. God loves men and women as the creation of, uh, as the crowning jewel of his creation. He loves us differently than he loves the plants and the animals. He loves us differently than he loves 
the rest of creation, the rocks and the trees. He feels for humanity. He identifies with them. He's going to identify with them ultimately in Christ, right? And come down. He grieves for them. He intervenes to redeem them. Think about this and consider this. Genesis 1 and 2 does not tell us what happened really to Satan and the demons, right? Genesis 3, that joker just pops up. So we assume maybe from a passage in Jeremiah, maybe from another passage in Ezekiel, it talks about them falling from heaven. So they were created, of course, uh, creatures created by God, and they fell from heaven. So here you have creatures created by God that fell from heaven. Part of the angels. We, we know this, right? Everybody knows this? You have creatures created by God that fell from heaven. Then here comes men and women. We're creatures, and what happens to us? We fall. Have you ever thought about the fact that God did not provide a way of salvation for the demons? He didn't have to. He didn't have to redeem them, and he doesn't. He doesn't send a redeemer for them to, 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 to be restored. He punishes them for eternity in hell, the scripture says. He sends them and confines them to hell. Those creatures he made, he sends and confines to hell because of their sin. But us, he loves us differently, doesn't he? We fall. He didn't have to redeem us. He could have let us go into hell as he condemns us because of our sin. He could have left us in that and condemned us, but he doesn't. He identifies with us through sending his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us. It only demonstrates God's love for humanity all the more. His love for humanity all the more. That's where we are valuable to him and he could have left us in our sin, but he redeems us. He also, again, as I said, gives us this dignity. Notice it says, male and female, he created them. If you read Romans 1, Romans 1 again tells us that men and women saw the glory of God, knew that he existed through his majesty and power, yet traded that for a lie, basically. And when they trade that for a lie, the list starts happening of what the capabilities are, what the ramifications are for trading that for a lie, doesn't it? And you see every form of grievous sin. And in our own lifetime, we have seen this. We've all seen this move. And even now where people are questioning if there's only two, male or female, people are questioning whether or not that birth is, is there and what happens. People are questioning these things now. We see in Genesis 1, if we take the plain reading of the text, we recognize that God created man, uh, male and female. Only two, right? And then what does he give them? He gives them a command. And what's the command he gave man? Be fruitful and multiply. Well, he gives them that command. Why? Because he's given them everything they needed in the male and female. Be fruitful and multiply. In this is our dignity that we not only recognize we are created in God's image, we are made in God's image exactly how he wanted us to be, male and female. And that for his glory is to be used to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so here, whenever that's lost... Whenever that's lost, whenever people begin to say that God didn't make me this way or that way or whatever they want to do, and they start questioning the very order of creation in these things, they, I think, unwittingly, unwittingly sometimes, although they think they may be grabbing for dignity, they unwittingly are losing it. 
They're losing it. And ultimately for us, that's not something that we as believers should bash or mock. It's something we should pity and long for to be made right. All of creation is groaning for Jesus to make it right again, you know? But as I said before, when you unhitch this earth from the authority that we have in God and his word, then anything is possible. Any form of wickedness that we may see. And that's not anything I'm saying out of the ordinary. Again, I'm referring to Romans 1 again. Read Romans 1. See what's possible. But whenever they deny the authority of God and his word, God created men and women in his own image with value and worth, male and female. Male and female. To fulfill the creation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. And that, in that, is where we seek to find our dignity. In that sense, then, finally, we are the crown jewel, as I said, the vice regents of God's creation. I use vice regents because God is king. God is king. But then he puts us as man in the garden in charge of the earth. So we are ruling in his stead, if you will. And so he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and all the earth. Y'all remember that threefold level of the house? You see it again here. Men and women are to have dominion over all of creation. You have dominion over all of it. The birds, the livestock, the fish, everything. You have dominion over it all. That dominion is to be exercised. If you go down in verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. It's another part of that vice regent. You're to fill it and subdue it and have dominion over the fish, over the birds, over the living things that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. In other words, again, Everything was given to men and women to have dominion over. And God called us as men and women and gave us the charge, Adam and Eve, the charge to be vice regents over his creation, have dominion over it, have dominion over it. You can't lose that because this has great ramifications for who Jesus is and what he's coming to do. Because what we find when Adam and Eve sin is they fail to exercise dominion. They fail to exercise the dominion they were called to, called to exercise. Again, they should have taken the serpent and done what? Crushed his head and kicked him out the garden. But they failed to exercise the dominion that they have been called to exercise. And so what has to happen? We have to have a new Adam, as Romans tells us. A new Adam to come in, the second Adam. And that Adam is going to exercise and do what the first Adam could not do. That Adam is going to come and, and subdue it, be fruitful and multiply. And how is he going to be fruitful and multiply? By dying. And what does he say? I just read it this past week in my sermon. When a seed falls to the ground and dies, what happens? Life comes out. Multiplication happens. 
And so Jesus goes and dies so that his people can have life. And his people will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea with his glory. Sand of the seashore is not enough to count, right? Jesus will do what Adam could not do. And so we have to remember that it has been given to us to be those vice regents and exercise dominion. And we are to do that in our own little places, on our own little property, in our own little houses, on all those things. We exercise dominion, right? Sometimes the weeds have dominion over you. I understand that. But God in his graciousness allowed us the ability like him to create. And we have been free to create things like Roundup that kills weeds. Amen. And it works. So we exercise dominion over those things. And when you do that, when you do that, you are displaying. Don't, don't consider this too trivial or too trite. When you do that, you're displaying the image of God. You're displaying the image of God. Because that's what God has given us through this image not only that personality, not only that morality, that spirituality, but the ability to take this creation that he's given us and exercise dominion over it and demonstrate, demonstrate, demonstrate his goodness in the way we live, the way we live. God is gracious to us and he's good. And when we talk about humanity, really, it's tough for us sometimes because I, I, I feel like it could be easy for me to stand here and just condemn things that are going on in our society. We all see them. We all know them. What we want also to be as believers is not just ones that condemn all the time, but ones to speak as to what is good and what is right. And so we want to say true dignity comes whenever you fulfill the purpose of God in creation. True dignity comes whenever you fulfill what he has made you for. And that purpose is what gives us our value in life, right? That purpose is what gives it to us. And so we want to be faithful to recognize that everybody is created in God's image. Every single one of us on this earth. Every human that's ever been created is created in God's image from conception until death. Created in the image of God. People talk about bodies all the time and I remember... One guy, I was in seminary and we were listening to this debate between someone who was pro-abortion and someone who was anti-abortion. And so the guy who was pro-abortion just simply began to discuss how odd that fetus is what he wanted to call it. How odd that fetus looks in the womb. Just look at it. It looks like an alien. And he starts talking like this. And so he goes on this long debate to talk about how Obviously, that's not the same thing as us or this is different and all this other things. Look how it looks in that form. It's not there yet. All this kind of nonsense. And the Christian guy who had just listened to this for about five minutes, that thing does not look like a human being. The Christian guy just stands up and he goes, you know, and he looked at the picture that the guy had up there. He said, that picture looks an awful lot like you did when you were that age. <laughs> And so we have to recognize that from conception until death, every single person is created in God's image, therefore has value. Therefore, we seek to help. We seek to lift up. We seek to build up. We seek to honor. We do not seek to destroy. We seek to not only bring life, but give life, right? 
encourage one another. We seek not to condemn someone in their sin, for that's not our job. God condemns. We seek to call them out of their sin to believe in the only one who can make us right again. Because we all were broken. And we're all in desperate need of someone to fix us because of sin. And Christ Jesus is the only one who can do that and make what was wrong right. And so that's what we hope to do. It's better for us to be able to understand who we are before we can ever look to what Christ has done. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the goodness that uh, you have displayed in our lives. We thank you, Father, for the dignity that we have because of creation and how you made us in your image. And so now, God, may we not only seek to honor you with the life and purpose that you have given us, but also, Father, may we seek to help others honor you. God, we thank you. We thank you ultimately for Jesus, because even as we look to Genesis chapter 1, we know that Genesis 3 is coming. And Father, we're living in that nightmare in many ways. But we know that the answer to that nightmare is Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, Father, we proclaim him. We exalt him, our new and faithful Adam, our king and our deliverer, is Christ Jesus. And so tonight, Father, I pray that that is true in every one of our lives. Of course, in his name we pray. Amen. Thank y'all so much. We'll see you hopefully Friday. Remember at noon, we have our good Friday service here in the worship center. Not Sunday morning. It's going to be a good time.